Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've talked with Steve Israel about how important winning elections is to the balance of power in Congress and why having a majority is essential for actually legislating. And most importantly to me, in our current climate, protecting our democracy from rising authoritarianism. As we head into the midterms, one of the organizations that's going to be right on the front lines of this fight is the New Democrat Coalition Action Fund. And I'm very happy to welcome two New Dems to the show today. New Democrat Coalition Action Fund Chair, Congressman Brad Schneider from Illinois, and two-term Congressman Colin Allred from Dallas, Texas. Gentlemen, we are recording on a Wednesday, which is typically one of the busiest days on the Hill. So thank you both for making the time today. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. So I, uh, I really want to dive into the Action Fund, which is the political action arm of the organization and what you both are thinking about the midterms. But first, you are both members of the New Democrat Coalition. Most people have the framework of the House Democratic and Republican caucuses, and some are going to know or have heard of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and the Freedom Caucus. So just to set the table, can you lay out what the role of ideological caucuses are in Congress and what the New Democrat coalition, how it fits into that schema. And I'll leave it to you. Uh, who's best to take these questions? So I, I'm going to contrast us. The ideological caucuses are caucuses that come together uh, under a, a common banner like the Progressive Caucus. Uh, the New Dems, I'll, I'll draw somewhat of a distinction on. Uh, we are centrist Dems. We run a, a, a broad uh, spectrum of members, though. We have members who are part of the Progressive Caucus, members who are part of Blue Dogs. I think what unites the New Dems is this desire to find ways to get things done to advance the nation and, and the American people. So we'll reach across our caucus, we'll reach across the aisle, uh, and we have grown. I was elected first in 2012, started in 2013. There were 42 New Dems at that time. Today we're at 97. We are the largest of the quote-unquote ideological caucuses. Uh, but I think that's a reflection of how we do things. As I say all the time, uh, moderation, being a moderate is, is an approach. It's not so much a, a position. And uh, we approach things in, in figuring out how to get things across the, the finish line and, and work for the American people. Now, I wasn't really familiar with the New Dems uh, when I first started running um, in 2018. I, I'd worked in the Obama administration, but I wasn't really familiar with the members. I knew it existed, but I didn't know exactly what it's um, position was. And I remember speaking with you know, a, a few members of, of the coalition and, and kind of understanding where they were coming from. And in particular, cause I was getting, I was running in a primary, uh, and I, you know, I'm from Texas, so I'm pro free trade, you know, I'm, I'm a free trade Democrat and that's, that's important for our economy. Um, and, uh, you know, I was kind of getting some flack for that in my primary and particularly around you know, the, the TPP and, and trying to, you know, open up avenues in Asia, which I think now is pretty clear. We should have done that. Um, and speaking with them, I understood that they were right there with me. And I really felt like, Oh, great. I'm not alone in, in this, you know? And so for me, it's been, um, it's a real home in terms of, uh, as, as Brad said, a style and an approach but also kind of the intellectual backing. Uh, and we have, you know, we provide debate books for folks that that was very important for me in, in my campaign, you know, kind of like, what's the, you know, what's the, I guess you use the word moderate, but what's like the common sense approach 
for the Democratic Party here. And that's I think that's where we we are. I like that. I like common sense as opposed to I think moderate. Uh, it takes on a patina of squish these days for a lot of voters, right? And that's actually not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about getting things done. Yeah, and I'm a black civil rights lawyer, so you know, like I'm, I can be as if you want to talk about civil rights, I can, you know, I can go wherever you want to go on that. But you know, for me, for the people I represent, uh, passing legislation that's actually going to help them is more important than staking out a position that you know is going to make me feel good about myself. Okay, there are. A lot of eyes on the midterms, obviously. The stakes are incredibly high. Uh, Democrats have a razor-thin majority in the House, and uh, the word majority is doing a lot of work there. Uh, the, the new Dems are the, li- the largest, um, we'll, we'll call them ideological uh, coalition in Congress. Uh, if you want to substitute a different word, I'm happy to use it. Uh, and the ad that I saw the Action Fund put out was called Majority Makers. I'm going to get to the ad in a little bit. Um, but can you talk about why this coalition of members in, in Congress is the keystone to the Democratic majority? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, first of all, in 2018, a lot of us ran uh, from my class, and I was president of our of that class, and um, a lot of us ran because we were worried about the country. And, you know, I was in the Obama administration. I was there through the transition. I thought that what was, what was coming in was going to be bad. And I thought that because of their approach to the transition, to be honest with you, just, I did not look like it was going to be, um, a well-run administration. Uh, and you know, I was, um, I decided to come home and, and run in the district that I was born and raised in. Uh, and I maybe would have run at some point in my life, but not at that point, most likely if I wasn't as concerned about what I thought the country was facing, uh, and I think a lot of us did that, and we, but we ran uh, particularly with this idea uh, that you know we weren't just trying to get Democrats in power. We weren't just trying to take the majority for you know uh, this you know, whatever agenda might be out there. We we wanted to try and um, I think represent what we thought the country was and where it is, and. Most of the folks like me who flip seats in that election are now new Dems. And I don't think it's a, it's not a coincidence. And we're now also the ones who are in the toughest races in this election. And for some of us who ran in 2018, flipped a seat, held on to it in 2020, this will be our toughest race. Um, And, you know, partly from redistricting, uh, partly uh, because of, you know, the national mood and, and things like that. Um, but these are the folks who, if, if you're looking around, you're wondering, you know, how do we pass uh, the bipartisan infrastructure uh, deal? You know, how do we pass uh, the, the Competes Act, and, and you know, how do we pass the American Rescue Plan? It, it's because we won these seats, and because we're holding them, and so we are the center of gravity. But we're also the ones who keep, you know, the gavel out of Jim Jordan's hands uh, on judiciary, and who, you know, keep um, some of the, I think, really, really extreme voices on the other side. Uh, from being the ones uh, that that are you know driving the agenda in the house, and so yeah, th- this group, the New Dems, and our and our effort is literally where uh, this next election is going to be decided. Brad, anything to add? Yeah, he, he's one hundred percent right. Uh, he was part of this class that came in in twenty eighteen that, that flipped the majority. The Democrats uh, turned over forty seats. Three quarters of those were New Dem uh, seats. Uh, folks like Colin Allred, but also Mike Cheryl, uh, 
uh, Sharice Davids in, in Kansas. You, you look across the country, and, and these were uh, new dem races, and, and that makes sense because these are the swing districts, and the new dems with their message of reaching uh, across the aisle, reaching across the caucus, uh, I think resonates. It resonated in 2018. It resonated in in 2020. The, the hard fought battles were all new new dem battles, and, and we held on and kept the majority. And as we look to 2022. You're seeing the, the same thing, and it's it's not just our incumbent uh, new dem members that are in the top races, but where we are looking to pick up seats, uh, we're looking at some uh, new dem candidates there as well. Okay, let's talk about uh, the the fight ahead. Since you mentioned this fight, uh, and and Brad, before we you know talk about why you're optimistic, uh, I'd like to dig into the contours of that fight um, because when you dropped this ad, I think back in November. Um, uh, you know, there, you, you, that was one of the things you noted, right? We have a tough fight ahead. There are things you cannot influence structural and environmental factors about the, the nature of the midterms. And there are things you can influence. I would say message tactics, candidates in the bucket of things, uh, that you can't influence that you can't change. I would put the map you're dealt and redistricting likely favoring Republicans, thanks to the control of state legislatures, the historical trend of the party in the White House performing poorly in the midterms because there are always a referendum on the incumbent president. The fact that despite the massive achievement of the massively important infrastructure package, voters aren't going to see its material impact in their daily lives for some time to come. And even when it does, it will be gradual. That's that's by design. Um, but I want to talk about why you see it as tough and what you see as the biggest challenges and vulnerabilities uh, among the things you can control, that you can change, uh, and how should Democrats guard against those vulnerabilities? Great, great question. And you're right. There are things that are beyond our control and we can't, they're beyond our control. So that's not what we should focus on. So where can we uh, focus? I, I will challenge a little bit on, on redistricting. The conventional wisdom was that the Republicans were going to redraw the maps and, and and change the map. It turns out as we come to the end of, of redistricting that uh, it looks like it might even be as, as close as a wash. There may be a seat here or there, but net net, uh, it's a wash. So we need to protect our incumbents. They need to run their best races. We need to look at these other seats where we have pick up opportunities and, and get good candidates and, and help those candidates get their message across. At the end of the day, I still believe Tip O'Neill's uh, axiom, all politics are local, bears some truth. And we need candidates who match their district. I'll use my district as a quick example. I ran the first time in 2012. I won by 1%. I lost to the same guy by two and won the third race in 2016 by five. Uh, but then I won my next two races by 31 and 28, respectively. I think the difference was people got to know me. They understood what I was fighting for. The boundaries of my district didn't change. The change in those numbers was the fact that uh, I was working to represent this broadest spectrum of the people. I serve as possible, and they appreciated it, appreciated that. I think that's what you're seeing with uh, our, our members like Colin Allred, who will hopefully have a, not an easy race. Every race is difficult because we have to get our message out, but he's now in his second term. He's running for a third term, and people will say, I see what he does. I know who he is. I want to make sure he continues to represent me. And I hope that continues to stay true for uh, new Dem members uh, across the country, and I, I think that's what we're seeing. Colin, how about you? Challenges you see? Yeah, I mean, I've been saying that um, in the last couple of elections, I think in some ways the national mood was just, uh, you know, with us in a lot of ways. 
And then in this selection, we have to run on our accomplishments. Uh, you know, when I talk to folks, they don't understand the filibuster. They don't care about that. They just know the Democrats are in charge of the Senate, the House and the White House. And we will be judged on that basis on you know what we actually did and then how we helped people. And I think we've done a lot more than people realize. And that's what we're going to have to spend you know, these next few months telling people um, you know, is just how big of a deal some of this legislation that we've passed is. And, uh, you know, we talk about the American Rescue Plan. I mean, if you're enjoying the benefits of this economy right now, you can trace it directly back to the American Rescue Plan. Uh, the fact that you can go to your CVS on the corner and get, um, you know, vaccine for free is from that bill. Um, you know, we kept businesses open and, and afloat. Um, we, you know, sent direct money to folks, of course. We created the child tax credit, which lifted you know, half of kids out of poverty while it was, uh, you know, still going. And, and so there's so much there in that bill. And it was such a big bill that we really need to break it down and talk about it and, and what it did. And the infrastructure bill, of course, you know, you're right when you say that some of the benefits may not be felt for some time. But, you know, in Texas, every day, every week I'm announcing you know, how much money is coming to Texas because of this bill. And we're talking about how that's going to impact you. Uh, and, you know, this is something that how many presidents have sought an infrastructure bill? You know what I mean? I, I got on the Transportation and, and Infrastructure Committee specifically during the Trump administration because I thought, hey, if there's one bill we're going to do with, with President Trump, it, it's going to be infrastructure. Of course, Infrastructure Week never materialized, but um, and here we are. And, and President Biden did it. And it was bipartisan. You know, and uh, and it's something that is is going to make huge impact um, in Texas and in my state. And so, you know, we, we've done a lot and there's still more for us to talk about. You know, I'm really excited about um, the Competes Act and, and what we're doing in terms of uh, trying to you know, increase our, our global positioning and, and sort of re reestablish our own uh, domestic supply chains on some of these really critical things that people are feeling. Um, but, you know. That's what I think the Newton's Action Fund is going to be part of also is just telling that story because, you know, the media is, um, you know, has a job to do. And I, I you know, I certainly appreciate that. Um, but I, I think that some of what we've done has, has, has been lost in the wash a little bit. And um, so that's why we're going to have to do it through our own communications on the ground. And we have really good candidates. I mean, the folks who won in 2018 and in 2020, and who are now the frontliners in this election, and some of the folks who weren't previously frontliners but have become frontliners because of uh, redistricting, um, they're really good. I mean, they're running against the A team here. Yeah, you know, you're talking about, you know, the Alyssa Slotkins of the world, Abigail Spanberger's of the world. I mean, these folks are good. Uh, they are ready. They know their districts, and they're going to be hard to beat. I want to make one thing clear for our listeners, just in case this point has been lost, but in 2020, the new Dems were the only caucus to flip seats from red to blue. Let me repeat that. The only caucus to flip seats from red to blue. There were three of them. An election where Democrats lost seats in the House. You both flipped seats. And I saw that you have Max Rose up as a candidate on the Action Fund website. So how are you trying to balance defending seats and trying to pick up seats? So uh, your listeners can't uh, see us, but when you mentioned Max Rose, both Colin and I smiled. We're very excited to have him coming back 
And uh, this is talking about picking up seats. I'll start there. There are a number of seats where we have a, a better than fighting chance. And uh, Max is a perfect example. He, he lost a, a narrow race in 2020. They've redrawn the map in New York, and, and it's now probably more to his advantage. Uh, and we have a couple of, of races around the country where that's the case. Uh, we have a number of other races where we have really strong candidates where we had narrow losses in 2020. Uh, the map may not have changed to their favor, but they fit the district in, in a precise way. And we've, I, I think everyone looking says that uh, we've got, again, a better than fighting chance. So we're hoping to pick up some seats. We, as you noted, we picked up, we flipped two seats uh, in, the, in the last cycle uh, where, uh, where that was uh, against the grain. And hopefully we'll, we'll pick up more than that this time. And then it's, it's defending our incumbents and, and making sure our incumbents uh, run the best race they can. Uh, we're making sure they have the resources they need. We're working to help them pass legislation, go home, and, as Colin talked about, go home and talk about what, what we accomplished with the American Rescue Plan. Go home and talk about what we accomplished with the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Talk about what we're working on in, in 2022 and show that there, it makes a real difference having someone fighting for your district that reflects the values we, we share as, as, new, as the New Democratic Coalition and getting things done. And I think when you look at the, the sum total, uh, right now it's a very evenly divided Congress. The Democrats have a, a five-seat, four-seat majority. Uh, I think if uh, we do, we stay on our message, we continue to recruit and support the good candidates we have, uh, I hope we can expand that majority. Okay. Let's talk about how you're going to do that. The, uh, which is the sales pitch. And by sales pitch, I mean the ad that you released called majority makers. Um, and I want to do that using the actual language from the ad, because the talking points here to me were very obviously chosen very carefully. And I want to talk about why, uh, now, uh, uh, I'm assuming that correct me if I'm wrong. I'm assuming this is a piece, um, not a piece that you plan to put any broadcast money behind. Uh, that's not the purpose. Rather, it seems to me to be a signal to the rest of the center left, uh, left of center campaign infrastructure uh, as to what the new Dems believe the message should be in order to keep and or build on the majority that you have. Is that accurate? Absolutely. With your permission, we may like play the ad so that listeners can hear what we're about to talk about. But it begins with we listen and then we go pro innovation. American values, what America needs, but I want to take these point by point. Democrats have taken control of the House Representatives. A historic accomplishment for the Democrats. New Dems make the majority because we represent the majority. We listen. We listen. We listen. We listen. We listen. We listen to what America needs. Why we listen? What about the current environment made you decide to open an ad about campaign messaging strategy with those words? I think it starts with who we are. Uh, if you talk to any new Dem member, you're going to talk to someone who, who reflects the values of the district because they're home talking to their constituents, hearing what their constituents care about. And, and that is just a principle that is, is shared uh, across the board. And I like to say, I give credit to my grandmother. Uh, she said, you have two eyes and, or two ears and, and one mouth. Use them in proportion. And uh, listening is, is probably the most important part of this job. But it's not just listening. It's taking what we hear and translating it into action. And again, this is where the new Dems stand out. So we start with, we listen, 
And then you go to the next pieces of the ad and it's showing the things that we're leading on, on growing our economy, creating opportunity, addressing climate change, standing up to the rhetoric and vitriol that's that's coming from the extremes. Uh, that's who we are. And I think that is the clear message of the ad. Colin, who's not listening? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of politicians aren't listening. And I think the... The longer you spend in D.C., the harder it becomes to listen. Um, you know, before I was a civil rights lawyer, I played in the NFL. And on every team I've been on, I've been a captain of that team. And, you know, I, you kind of learn doing that. Uh, you know, leadership is mostly about listening, actually, and understanding where people are. And, you know, people are in a different place uh, than they were in 2020. Um you know, we're still fighting this virus. Uh, you know, we do have to talk about inflation. Um, you know, and, and we do, you know, people, I, I think, are feeling frustrated uh, that we're not um, back to normal, you know. And, and I think that's what they voted for in 2020 um, was competency, um, you know, getting back to normal. And it's, it's a fight. And it's, you know, what we've done, though, has, I think, allowed us to be as close to normal as we can. Uh, but we have to meet people where they are. And, you know, my, I've got two kids that are young and uh, they've, they've both had to be home a few times because of COVID exposures uh, in their classrooms. And, oh my gosh, I mean, it's just so hard when the, when the kids are at home to work uh, for my wife, uh, who's also a lawyer, you know, working from home, it, it's tough when the kids are there. And, and so, you know, it's frustrating and it's been a difficult time and we have to meet people where they are. And understand that, uh, and and say, listen, we get it, but promise you, we're the better path forward here. We're the responsible path forward here. We'll get you out of this the fastest and the safest. Um, you know, as the president would say, you know, don't judge us uh, against the Almighty; judge us against the alternative. And you know, uh, that's why we have to listen first, though, because I feel like, you know, we do have a tendency sometimes in the Democratic Party to kind of, you know, get our dogmas and pursue them. Uh, and, and then kind of not know that the, the country might not be marching along behind you. Um, and so for me and in, in my district, it's where I'm from. It's my family's there. We've been there, you know, when I go to the grocery store, I'm, I'm looking at the, the shelves and, you know, noticing that there might be some issues there in terms of the workforce. And so they're not, it's not fully stocked. And, you know, that, those are the things you think, okay, well, let's go back to DC and let's see if there's anything, anything we can do about it. Well said. I mean, you guys are great. Next line. We are pro-growth. Pro-innovation. Pro-innovation, pro-growth, an economy that works for everyone. Brad, a decade ago, in another life, uh, as a, as a Republican operative, I would have put these ads in a sales pitch for Republicans. Like, so, and I, and I say that because I wonder how you think the, the GOP has effectively seeded the pro-business turf, the pro-growth turf, the economic message. Why do you, do you think that's true and why? I think it's absolutely true. And I'll go back to my first election. I mentioned I, I ran it against a, a first-term Republican, uh, he was uh, described himself as a moderate. We, I described that race as two guys standing on the 45-yard line screaming at our top of our lungs 
uh, at each other. Uh, if you look at where we are today, there are very few people who would be in that space to have a conversation like we're talking about, like we talk about at the weekly meeting with the New Dems about growth and opportunity, creating incentives within our economy uh, to, to promote business and, and create the quality, high-paying jobs that everyone wants to see in our economy. Uh, that just doesn't exist anymore. What you're seeing far more is a, a party that has moved to the extreme, that is controlled by the likes, Colin mentioned Jim Jordan before. He doesn't stand alone. You can throw Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, a lot. That number, whole those, crew of them, right? There's a whole those, motley crew of them. Yeah. Those numbers are grown. So, from our standpoint, where I say the Democrats, New Dems are at 97. I wish we had 97 moderate Republicans that we could partner with. And right there, you're half. You're more than halfway to to getting a majority on on any vote you need. That's that's going to focus on the things most people care about. Uh, what's What's going to help me pay my bills? What's going to help me uh, make sure my kids are getting the education, learning the lessons and skills they need to succeed in life? These are the things that New Downs talk about each and every single day. And unfortunately, uh, we don't have as many counterparts across the aisle as I wish we did. Yeah, and Ron, you you know, you would know this from your past. I mean, uh, I was endorsed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce last election. You know, <laughs> and, and, wow. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen. USMCA, for example, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade yeah. agreement. That wouldn't yeah. have happened without me, without Texas Democrats pushing for it. We were and the New Dems, uh, you know, through the New Dems. Uh, and we ended up with a trade deal that the chamber uh, supported and that the AFL-CIO supported, you know. And that's, that's the coalition that we're able to bring together on something, uh, you know, and I played with Anthony Gonzalez um, in the NFL, and you know he's a good friend of mine. Uh, in fact, the only bipartisan town hall that was held in the in the entire United States in the last Congress was when I went to Ohio and did a town hall with Anthony. Um, and you know he's a conservative guy, but he's reasonable. We can we can we work on a lot of bills together. You know he's not running for reelection. Uh, he's been driven out of that party because he uh, you know stood up against you know, what happened on January 6th and, and kind of the effort there. That's bad for business also, though. You know, the idea that, that yeah. someone like him is, is no longer going to be in the Republican Party is bad for business. And I just want to really quickly touch on the Competes Act, which is for folks, you know, it's in the Senate, they call it USICA. It's all about competition with China. It's all about increasing our own uh, you know, domestic kind of strength in terms of our economy. And we have $52 billion dollars uh, in that for manufacturing of, of semiconductors. So, you know, you're, you're hearing about, you know, uh, like I have Toyota headquartered just north of me um, in, in Texas. They've had days in their plants where they're not making cars uh, because they don't have the chips for them. Uh, and so that's driving up costs as well when you, when you go uh, to buy a car. And there's all kinds of things that this is impacting, right? And we, we know that we need to bring some of this manufacturing, the semiconductor manufacturing back home. So we put that in, you know, in this bill. We, we talked about you know, store shelves, maybe not always having everything you want on it. Well, we've got $45 billion in this bill for supply chains uh, to try and shore them up uh, and, and to try and you know, help us address you know, what is going on. This is all also anti-inflationary. Uh, you know, that's kind of the, the, the effort here, but it's also, it'll help us going forward. So, you know, I think that the idea that you know 
Democrats are are, are bad for business or, or not pro business, just has to be uh, exploded uh, because you know what are the Republicans talking about right now? I mean, what are they yeah. what are they talking about? The last yeah. election, right? They're talking about the last yeah. election, and they're talking about revenge. Uh, they're mm-hmm. talking about uh, conspiracy theories. You know, mm-hmm. um, they're pushing you know vaccine misinformation. You want to get you want to get people back to work. You want to get a lot of people to you know, go to the restaurant and and you know their favorite local restaurant instead of it being closed. Get, get folks vaccinated. You know, let's get through this. Let's beat this virus together. So yes, we are definitely the the pro business party right now, and we're the responsible party. And you know, they're we're we're running out of partners. That's what I mentioned, Anthony. For we're running out of partners on the other side to work with. And you know, I'm I'm just I think the the gap has grown instead of um, shrinking. And so we have to make sure people know that though, because I know that there's mm-hmm. some DNA uh, that we have to run against on that. And I certainly do it uh, in Texas every single day. Brad, you mentioned the, uh, the, the, the absence of 97 sort of willing partners across the aisle to work together. They don't exist. Right. And that's partly because mostly because the Republican party is now, I mean, I call it a loyalty cult. Um, there, there's no, there's no room for, uh, intellectual diversity at all to the extent that there's anything intellectual going on at all, because they're not talking about solving problems. Con, you mentioned how the Democratic Party is now taking on this seated turf of pro-business, pro-growth, getting people back to work, right? And I want to talk a little bit about the shifting constituencies, the shifting socioeconomic constituencies of both parties. Because it used to be the case that Republicans were associated with uh, white-collar workers, upper middle class, uh, right? Uh, and, and, uh, and the Democrat was, d- Democrats were for the working man. That is increasingly changing. Now, and I wonder how you think that fits into an economic message and how Democrats must, how they have to capture an increasing share of the white collar working vote, especially as, as more blue collar workers seem to be trending toward the right. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question um, because I think we're also you know, fighting for them as well, of course. We're fighting for the blue collar workers and our policies are the ones uh, that protect them, uh, that you know, seek to make sure they're not exploited. And, and we have to, so we can't entirely seed that ground. Um, and and I, I don't think that we have, and, you know, you look across, it's in Texas, for example, I think we, we see more of an urban rural split than, uh, than that. But, you know, a lot of the folks who knocked on doors for me, uh, who donated to my campaign uh, in 2018, used to drive around with W stickers on their car because uh, it's Bush country. You know, and I represent Pre- President Bush. <laughs> He's my constituent. He called me after I got elected and he left me a really funny voicemail. Uh, and then we we had a great meeting. We met for about an, about an hour and, and he's great, you know, and we got along very well. Um, and, you know, I know that he doesn't like what's happening in that party, uh, but there certainly has been a shift. I mean, those folks, you know, the district that I represent um, is not one that a Democrat would have represented uh, just a few years ago. It's been a rapid, a rapid change. Um, but the values of those voters haven't changed. I just think that the Republican party has moved. And so what I try to do, because I grew up there is be myself and talk about who I thought we were. And, you know, I I was raised in that district by a single mother and I kind of a story of what we can do together when, uh, when we come together and that just fit with, you know, those folks. Uh, so there's been a, 
there, there has been a change uh, in, in terms of, you know, I think who, where folks are going. But I, as I said, I think we can't lose sight of, you know, the idea that we're, that we are the party that, that, that wants to help the working person, you know, that, that particularly, um, you know, what we've done, I think, and what we're trying to do through Build Back Better and, and some of the things that I think will still go forward with that, it really is uh, for working women out there. Uh, and that's been one of the stories that we don't talk about enough in this, um, you know, pandemic has been, yes, people are coming back to work, but still a lot of women are not. Uh, and we're talking about, you know, uh, talking about blue collar. I mean, it's a lot of women of color, you know, and, uh, and that's kind of a different maybe demographic than what we might think of when you, when you say the word blue collar workers, uh, but those are the folks who, you know, essential workers, so to speak, who kept us going uh, when all of us were still inside and, you know, and, and didn't have a vaccine yet and weren't able to go out and, you know, who kept the economy going, who took the risks, um, you know, who were exposed, who had the highest mortality rates. Uh, and that's why things like, you know, uh, I was the first member of Congress to take paternity leave. So I took, uh, you know, leave when I had my first child in 2019 uh, and then took leave again in 2021. And I didn't know that I was the first uh, uh, man to do that in Congress. But you know, now we're trying to make sure that everyone has access to you know, paid family leave. Uh, everyone has uh, can afford child care, uh, you know, pre-K. And this is something that I think is important for our economy, too. And because people don't understand, you know, like when kids are young, when your moms are having to drop out of the workforce when people are not able to, to go to work because something's going on with their kids, then that impacts the overall economy. And then we, we see that, you know, show up as, as, you know, maybe the item you want not being on the, on the shelves at the, at the grocery store, because who's stocking that shelf? It's a mom maybe who's, who's home now, you know? And so that's what we're trying to address. Uh, and so we have to make sure the folks know that too, because I, you know, I think we can own a lot of different spaces here. Um, and if the Republicans want to continue uh, to just appeal to, uh, you know, basically the Fox News viewer or the, the Fox News evening viewer who, uh, you know, is just going to sit there and, and take that in, and, um, then I think that's a shrinking uh, you know, part of the, the electorate, but a part of the population. And I don't think it's where the country really is right now. And I, I see kind of the, some of the stuff that's going on there. And, you know, I think... Yeah, that doesn't sound right. I think families have a much more basic considerations, you know, uh, and that, that's where we're going. Uh, and I think that's what, why Joe Biden is president is because he's, he's someone who can do that too. And so we just got to remind folks, and I think that's what we're going to be spending this year doing, um, you know, what we're trying to do, why we're trying to do it. Uh, and I think if we can do that, that we may be in better shape than people think. That's a good story to tell. And I think you need better storytelling. Like yes. that. Yeah, that's right. We have to tell our story. Yeah. Brad, one of the things Colin mentioned is that the values are shifting, that they seem to be changing. And the next line of the ad is we defend American values. We fight for our principles. We fight. We fight for our principles. Abigail Spanberger is my name. This is what democracy looks like. We just made history. We defend American values. What principles, what values, more specifically, what are the American values that you think need to be in part of them in the messaging mix 
What are the principles that you think need to be in the messaging mix for Democrats to win? Values evolve over time, but there are certain things that are, are bedrock. And, and one of the things that are, are, I put on the bedrock values are, are caring about our kids. And I think that's true whether you're in an urban district or rural district, red state, blue state. Uh, people want to see the best opportunities for their children. And, and that's a function of a growing economy. It's a function of, of quality education, uh, access to affordable and quality health care. And those are the things that, that we, we talk about. But I think also, when we, when, especially in this ad at this moment, when we talk about American values, uh, the pedestal about, upon which our country stands is the idea that we are a democratic republic, that every single citizen should be able to cast their vote easily, uh, be, have the confidence that their, their vote will be accurately counted, and be certain that the um, tally of the vote will reflect uh, the true outcome in, in uh, have that confidence. And, and so we're seeing an effort and it's ongoing and it's in the news of the many in the Republican Party saying, and I'll quote the former president, overturn an election. Oh, yeah. Oh, we talk about that all the time on this show. I mean, yeah. Right. And, Sorry to interrupt. And, Go ahead. And, and you see, see that the Republican National Committee calling what we saw in January 6th. And I was in the gallery taking cover from the, the mob, calling that legitimate political discourse. Uh, those are not the values we share as Americans. Some people may share them, but I think the, the vast majority of the country, whether you are a Democrat, Republican, or independent, believes that we should be able to have honest debate, fair conversation, sometimes heated debate, but do it in a way that's respectful. And at the end of the day, we stand united in trying to advance the best interests of our nation as, as a whole. So I think across the country and, and in, within the, the new Democrat coalition, we are a, a staunch voice for that, a stable voice, and have been consistent over the years. And that's true whether we're talking, as Colin noted, uh, women, whether they're working at home or, work, or, or in the workforce, making sure they have the support they need, uh, making sure that uh, white-collar workers, blue-collar workers, uh, people working out uh, in agriculture, whatever it may be, know that they can pursue their passions, pursue their dreams, work hard for a lifetime, and have a dignified retirement and that their kids are going to be taken care of. These are everyday kitchen table conversations that I think the new devs consistently are, are talking about. We aren't beating drums. We aren't uh, standing on the steps of the Capitol waving our arms. What we're doing is trying to address the concerns that voters have in their everyday lives and bring it forward in, in legislation and policy uh, in the U.S. Congress. In a little bit, I want to come back to that point about theater competing with substance, uh, but not yet. Uh, um, there's one other piece to this ad uh, uh, before we move to the next piece. It says, a fair shot to earn a good life. A fair shot to earn a good life. Now, look, as I, 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 I had this uh, uh, ad transcribed so that I could read the words without the music, right? And like... I'm a, I'm a messaging guy. So I'm looking at like, this is very carefully worded. Okay. And to me, that line sounds a lot like it is designed to invoke a focus on equality of opportunity and individual responsibility. Again, a decade ago, language I would have put in a Republican ad. And I, I want to know what you, what you mean by that line. If, if that's, if that's true. Um, and also. I said equality of opportunity and not equity. And I, I'm really curious about what you both think about the 
seeming substitution in a lot of uh, maybe farther left um, rhetoric that I see all the time with the word equity for equality. What's going on there? Let me take a, a shot at that, then I'm going to throw it to Tom because uh, you know, he's, he's a lawyer and, and he's been uh, working in that field far longer than I have. But for me, it is about opportunity. I, I spent, uh, before Congress, my career was working with family-owned businesses, and we drew a distinction between what's equal and what's fair in, in, in dealing with your children. Um, and fair is, isn't always equal, but, but when it comes to opportunity, I want every kid in this country whether they are born in the most affluent zip, zip code or in a community that is economically challenged. I want them to have the opportunity to, to go to school, to learn the lessons they need, to have the role models they deserve, to say, I can be what I want to be. And that may be an NFL football player. It might be someone in business. It might be someone who becomes a teacher. Uh, my, my younger son is a zookeeper. Whatever they want to achieve and aspire to, I want to make sure that as a country we're providing uh, the resources to give them the, the tools to achieve it. And that's the equality of opportunity. And there will be winners and losers where equities come in. And this is my interpretation of the word is that in my district, I have one of the wealthiest school districts in the country, literally next door to one of the, the uh, least affluent, most struggling school districts, certainly in Illinois. Um, and, and they're literally right next door to each other. That's a function of historical dynamics of how Illinois funds schools. There's a lot of reasons behind it. Equity is saying that we're going to fix that to make sure that the kids, wherever they go to school, are getting what they need and, and giving the chance they, they deserve. And that uh, whether they're coming from uh, white, black, Latino, whatever their ethnic history is, isn't determinative of what their future possibilities are. And to me, that's where you get into equities. So that's not language I'm going to walk away from. I believe we can have a quality of opportunity, quality before the law, and we can work to address the inequities in our society so that every one of our kids can achieve the best that they can be to make sure that the country is constantly moving forward to that more perfect union. All right, let's hear from the civil rights lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, listen, I, I think that I, I believe in opportunity I believe we can create opportunity, not outcomes, right? And um, the the idea there is that it's up to you. You know, if we give you my my kind of view of things uh, in my civil rights practice and as a member of Congress is, you know, if we give you a chance and you have a fair shot at it, then it, then it's on you where you go from there. But if we don't give you a chance, it's on us. Uh, and obviously, we have not given uh, you know enough Americans a chance and. We know, and we can spend all day talking about that. Where I think we have to go now, uh, you know, is how do we address that in the country that we we are we have now? And you know, the the kind of idea that we're going to be able to just you know, level and, and even the playing field is not something that I've seen in, in my uh, experience in the law or in Congress or as a black man growing up in the United States. That is just, it's not going to happen uh, overnight, certainly, but it's also, I'm just not sure that, the, that there's a piece of legislation that can do that, that there's a policy that can do that. What we have to, to slowly chip away at is evening the opportunities 
for folks to be able to express themselves and for their talents to, to come through. And, you know, I went to a um, public school in Dallas that um, is a good school, but it's, you know, it was at a time when Dallas public schools were, were struggling. Uh, and I saw so much talent that was not realized there. So many folks who had they been able to would have contributed so much to their community, to the country, uh, but, you know, fell through some of the cracks. And, you know, those are the folks that I think about when, you know, we're having a conversation like that, you know, equity or equality uh, is, well, if we could give uh, those kids, uh, you know, a little bit more of a leg up, I know they would take it and run with it. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not worried about their motivation to pursue their own good life. Everyone wants to do that, you know? And, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe it is a little bit of a, a former Republican viewpoint that, you know, it's on you once we give you a shot, but I think that's an American value. Uh, and I think that it's one that we understand implicitly that, you know, if you get it, if you have a, a chance that it's up to you to take it. And so that's what we're trying to do here. And I think, you know, we can focus on, on important areas uh, that are the most impactful uh, for creating equality. Uh, and I think that's what the new Dems do because in, for those areas, it also has to have enough consensus to pass, to become law, to not just be an idea, not just a tweet, not just a, a position paper. Uh, you know, I went to, I went to Cal Berkeley for law school, not just theater, not just theater, you know, and I, listen, I can have, you know, a theoretical debate with you all day about what would be nice to have happen or what in an ideal situation you would do, but that's not where we are, you know, and it's not going to help anybody. It's not going to help, you know, me growing up with a single mom who's a public school teacher. I don't need that debate. I need some action. Well said. Uh, okay. I know we're, we're, we're coming up on time. I'm mindful of it, but there's two big pieces here. I want to, I want to get to the next piece of this ad says we hold the line against those who seek nothing less than the destruction of America, the destruction of our democracy. We stand against the division, chaos, despair, hate. And we hold the line against those who seek nothing less than the destruction of America, the destruction of our democracy. We win in the districts that decide whether America keeps moving forward. Building back better and stronger. Or goes right back to the division, the chaos, the despair, and the hate. Okay, so this is something we talk about a lot on the show, obviously. So uh, we don't need to spend a ton of time here, but there's one thing, um, you know, uh, there's one thing I want to point out. This is stuff that doesn't look like unfortunately, sadly, is, is top of mind uh, or even a major factor for a lot of voters. Um, from July to October, support for the select committee dropped uh, 5% from 53 to, to 48. Support among Dems went from 80 to 81%. Independent uh, became more unsure. Um, uh, and then we're seeing a lot of data, you know, that Americans think democracy is in crisis. Um, a January CBS YouGov poll has it at 66% of Americans saying democracy is threatened. NPR Ipsos has it at 64 who say democracy is in crisis and at risk of failing. Um, but there are different reasons for that along ideological lines, right? Obviously, everybody says it's in trouble, but, but they disagree about why. Uh, and in that NPR poll, 
two thirds of Republicans said voter fraud helped Joe Biden win the 2020 election. <laughs> okay. Let, like it, it, the, the, the train is off the rails. It's, it's unhinged. Less than half of Republicans say they were willing to accept the results of the 2020 election, less than half of the entire party. So I wonder why you think this uh, is an effective messaging strategy and how you're thinking about the challenge of being out there running running candidates using the same language to say the polar opposite things are threatening democracy. I think it's not just an, an important message to hear and it's an important message to continue to repeat because there is a, a human nature aspect. January 6th, that was January 6th of 2021, more than a year ago. Uh, most people want to get on with their lives. Most people want to, whether it's getting their kids to school or to soccer practice or dealing with projects at work or whatever it might be, um, it's easy to say that was then, we're okay now. But the fact of the matter is the people who perpetrated January 6th, the people who organized it and created the dynamic that led to that are continuing to do the same thing uh, today. The message we're talking about, which is really important, I think to focus on is we do want to move forward. We are going to move forward with creating opportunities, growing our economy, investing in education and healthcare and competitiveness, all of those things. But we're also going to make sure that the foundations of our democracy, the access to vote, the confidence in the outcome of our elections, the security of our elections are protected. And there's no reason we can't do both. We're not going to run on a message January 6th. We're going to run on a message of looking forward. We're going to run on a message of looking forward and understanding from where we're coming and what we have to do to make sure that we don't fall backwards. Okay. Good answer. I mean, we're going to continue talking about this a lot on the show, so hopefully you can talk about it less. (laughs) Thank you. Next, this one's interesting. A bold America, a strong America, a free America an America that will lead the world in every way. I apologize in advance for saying this, but it sounds like make America great again. New Dems make the majority. And we will defend the majority. For a bold America. For a strong America. For a free America. For an America that will lead the world in every way. Forward. It sounds like Make America Great Again, which, uh, look, that works for a reason. And I think what's happening, uh, what you're trying to invoke here is a feeling of pride to be an American, a healthy sense of patriotism contrasted with an unhealthy far-right nativism, which is what MAGA represented. And we've talked a lot on the show about the decline of American leadership in the world. Uh, we've talked about, um, you know, our good friend of the show, Molly McHugh, a national security writer, uh, adjunct at Georgetown. She talks about this pincer of isolationism, uh, that, that is, that is making foreign policy extremely difficult for the Biden administration. And what she means by pincer of isolationism is that we have this phenomenon that's, that's happening where on the far right, we have a weird sort of isolationist, uh, vein and it's growing, that where the general attitude, the prevailing attitude is, uh, it's not our job. We don't have to do that. We shouldn't like, we, we don't, we're not responsible for the rest of the world. They're not ready for America. Why we shouldn't bother, uh, intervening in other parts of the world, right? Not our job, not our duty. And then on the left, on the far left, you have this prevailing attitude of it's not our right. We have no place. 
to tell the rest of the world how it ought to run, right? We have, there is no, there is no place for American intervention uh, on the world stage. And, and that has created a, a problem for, for foreign policymaking. Not that foreign policymaking should ever be done by popular opinion, um, but I wonder how you think about you know, the power vacuum that we've created by retreating from the world stage under Donald Trump and how Angela Merkel became the leader of the free world during his time in office. Uh, what is the vision you want to convey here with this language? And how is it characteristically different from what Trump meant by America first? I'll, go, I'll be real brief and I'll throw it back to Colin. I think the distinction is in, in mad world, they see a, a, an American decline. They see fires burning and, and, and you know, a very dismal view and then want to paint a very simple, wonderful view, building castles and clouds, if you will. I think, and I'll speak just for myself initially, I see a country that started with an idea, has built on, upon that idea, far from perfect in its founding, but seeking that more perfect union that is great and continues to be great. And what the ad says, we all as, as New Dems have this vision of American leadership, American investing in, in our, our kids and our future. So we de develop the competitive edge, not just that we've had in past years and currently, but on to into the future. Uh, and is a very optimistic view. So if I describe myself, it's an American optimist in that view. I think that's the message many people share. It's not the message the press likes to talk about. Again, being a moderate doesn't create the theater, doesn't uh, uh, draw the, the headlines, but it is a reflection of what I think most people feel. So our message is, yes, the world is better when America leads. Yes, the world is better when we're I come from Chicago, the city of big shoulders, where we're lifting our shoulders and walking tall and setting the example that everyone else aspires to. And that's what we continue to want to promote. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, I think it, it's a message people are thirsty for, honestly. Yeah. Colin, what yeah, do you think? Well, Brad and I are both on the foreign affairs committee and um, so we can wax poetic on this, but I think, uh, you know, I believe in American exceptionalism and I, I think that, MAGA is not about American exceptionalism. It's it's small America. It's hard America. It's internal America. It's and it's it's a uh, it's it's one that is limited. And I would agree with the the criticism of of the kind of the left view that like because we have not always uh, led in the best way that we we can't lead at all. You know, and I, I reject that as well. Uh, you know, I just got back from Ukraine um, and from Brussels, meeting with the EU and NATO and. Um, before that, I went to Taiwan uh, and South Korea and Japan, talking to our allies in the Pacific, uh, dealing with China and obviously NATO and uh, Ukraine was dealing with Russia. Listen, I mean, everybody's looking to us, you know, uh, they need us to lead the alternative view uh, that is not an authoritarian one, that is not uh, one where, you know, the scope of your life is determined by, you know, the will of one person, you know, and, and so that to me, uh, being the world's leader and talking about American exceptionalism um, are the same, you know, and that we are exceptional because we lead uh, and that if we don't lead, there is, there are forces out there that want to go in a very, very different direction. Uh, and I think that the, the Republican kind of, you know, abandonment of this, because when you, when you first read that and you said what it sounded like, I thought you were going to say it sounded like George W. running and, and to, you know, because uh, <laughs> I think I might've heard that almost, then too, you know, the, uh, this kind of like, you know, we're going to restore 
um, American leadership around the world. And of course, I don't agree with uh, some of the things that happened there, but I, I certainly think that um, the when you're talking about you know, highly educated folks who are paying attention uh, and kind of where they're shifting, they're seeing that as well. They're seeing that you know this you know the kind of embarrassment of the last of the four years previously on the world stage. You know, Trump going to Helsinki and and basically shrinking before Putin. Uh, I don't think that, that any American sees our, sees us that way, you know. And I know that it had, uh, you know, I know that there are some folks who want to, you know, continue with that. But I, I don't think that that's who we are. And I think it's it's I think it's it's very un-American what we saw there. And so, yeah, I don't think we should own this ground. Uh, and you know, I think it's because of our flaws, because of the mistakes that we've made, uh, because of uh, the fact that we're not that we're an imperfect democracy that we can lead and that we can be that beacon on the Hill, you know, cause when, when we talk to our allies, you know, uh, they know we're not perfect, but they see us trying, you know, and, and I think that's the story uh, that has allowed us to kind of, you know, be this, this world leader, uh, look at how far we've come and look at where we're trying to go. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's ground I'll, I'll stand on all day. And I think in districts like mine, uh, that's, that's perfect. You know, having the conversation is, is one that I think is, is politically smart, uh, but also I think as Brad said, it's, it's a necessary one. We need to have that conversation. Because it's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you mentioned Helsinki. That was one of the most embarrassing moments for me as an American that I can remember. It's awful. Um, okay. Uh, I don't think it should be lost on anyone that the um, uh, new Democrat coalition is the largest ideological Congress caucus in Congress. Um, uh, but it's probably way less recognizable to our listeners than, for example, the Congressional Progressive Caucus or the Freedom Caucus. I promised you we'd get to theater. And if you're not paying close attention, right, if you're just looking at who's drawing the most media attention, which is the way this game works, uh, especially the way the fundraising game works, you'd think that the Democratic Party mirrors the Republican Party in that it's just full of loud extreme voices. And that's the bulk of the members um, uh, who are getting most of the attention. There are, uh, you know, and that there are a handful of members uh, on the center right. What challenges does that dynamic present for the new Dem members across the board, but specifically the ones who are running in competitive districts? And I will remind our listeners one more time, y'all are the only one who are winning, flipping seats. So <laughs> this has to be, this has to be quite frustrating for you. Yeah, I think it is. I think, you know, the, listen, you know, we can get a lot of attention if we want to go on Twitter and, you know, flame uh, the other side or flame our own side, you know, and I think maybe even like you said, raise some money that way too. Um, but in my experience running in a, a you know, a purple district, that's not how you win, you know? Uh, and I think that people are, are increasingly sick of it too. I know that it's, I know that it still gets the most attention on cable and I know that it might get the most clicks online. Uh, but I, I, I think there's a widening gap between what we see on cable and online and where people really are. And I see that, you know, in our, in the carpool line, when we're dropping our kids off, you know, I see that, uh, you know, when we're at like a birthday party and standing around with other parents, I, you know, I think that some of this has the, the incentive structure for that is very different than the incentive structure. I think most people have in their lives. Uh, and so that, that kind of 
that gap is one that I, we have to keep an eye on because, you know, why is Joe Biden president? You know, I mean, it, he wasn't the guy who was, you know, throwing bombs or making the, you know, the kind of pronouncements of things that he wasn't going to be able to do. Um, and he got the most votes in, in American history. Uh, so I, I think we have to kind of understand that what you're seeing on, at night on cable, uh, what you're seeing on Twitter and on Facebook is a conversation that is not, I, I think, the one that's being had at kitchen tables, you know. And if we lose sight of that in our party, uh, then not only will we, will we be in trouble politically, but the country will be in trouble because the other side, their incentive structure, as you know, has completely shifted now to where they're relying on, you know, an electorate that is uh, different and smaller. And I, I think is, uh, and shrinking, shrinking and that, uh, you know, you know, I think the, they can, they can take that. They can have that conversation. They can, they can run with that. We, I think Trump showed that, that that's, it's almost a viable strategy uh, for them, but we have to be the ones that are appealing broadly and that are forming coalitions and that are getting folks from all different walks of life uh, to vote for us. And to do that, I think we have to keep appealing to those common values. And I think that, like I said, I, I just, I'm increasingly convinced that, you know, not only is Twitter not real life, but like cable news is not real life. Right. You know? And, and, and so if you, you know, turn that off every now and then, right. Turn it off, go talk to normal people. And I promise you, you'll feel better about the country. You'll feel better about our politics. Um, and I, th I think that's how we win. That's how we won in 2018 and 2020. It's how hopefully we'll win going forward is that we had candidates who understood that we have you know, candidates who try and keep that in mind. I don't care how many retweets I get. I honestly don't care. Right. I'm trying to do something to help people you know, who came from similar circumstances like I did. And that is, um, that's, that's what I'm going to try and stick with. Well said. Uh, I'll add just one thing, yeah. if I can. Please. Rod, it's, you know, political theater, what you're seeing in, at the extremes on both sides is about turning heads. It's about getting people to say, oh my gosh, I can't believe he or she just said that. Um, the, the hard part is not turning heads, but moving the country forward, creating real policies that are going to make changes in people's real lives to move the ball forward. And that happens much more slowly, much less dramatically. And oftentimes you don't notice the progress you've made until you've taken two, three or four steps ahead. And that's what the new Dems are about, is trying to find a way, find a path to get things done, to reach across the entire political spectrum to our left and to our right, and bring Congress to a place where we're actually doing things that advance the, the nation's interests and lift up the lives of, of the American people. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. And I know we just got a note that they're calling votes, speaking of votes. So you guys got to run before you do, where can everybody find you on the internet and follow your work? And we'll put a link to the ad in the show notes uh, and your Twitter handles, et cetera. What about so you? for me, it's uh, schneider.house.gov, our last name.house.gov, same, same for Colin and the new Dems. Uh, you can Google us, uh, new Democrat coalition or uh, uh, new Dems.org, um, I think. Great. And you're on Twitter. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. You can find us at Ed Schneider for Illinois 10. Uh, but mostly we're in the uh, meeting rooms and the, and the discussions in the Capitol getting things done. Great. Colin? Yeah, I'm, you know, it's funny because I just said Twitter's not real life, but I'm at Colin Allred TX on Twitter. 
uh, for my uh, campaign account, I guess you say, and then our rep Colin Allred um, for our official. So also on on Facebook and um, ColinAllred.com if anyone's interested in going to my website. Wonderful. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. We welcome back anytime and let's stay in touch. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.